This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I am your host. My name is Stephen Cox. Hello. This week, how Democrats can craft a winning message in 2020. We talked with two prominent Washington State Democrats, State Democratic Party Communications Director Will Casey and Chair of the King County Democrat Shasti Conrad about how we in the grassroots community can best communicate to voters what Democrats stand for and about how we strike the ideal balance in talking about and not talking about Trump. Continuing to tie the Republican Party to the mess and the disaster and the war crime level behavior of the Trump administration is key, but we just can't get stuck there. Then we are joined again by Jennifer Young. She is a therapist who specializes in trauma. She is also an indivisible leader, and she is here to answer your questions about how activists can best cope with overwhelm, outrage, and anxiety. That's all ahead, so stay with us. So it is a given that Democrats have to win in 2020. We need to retake the White House and the Senate, and we have to keep the majority in the House. What is less clear at this point is how we get there. And specifically, I mean, how do Democrats craft and convey a compelling message that connects with voters in 2020? It is still somewhat early, but I think now is a good time to start talking about messaging. This is going to be particularly pertinent to grassroots activists because we are the ones who are going to be out on the front lines talking to voters. And so to discuss this, I have been invited on two prominent Democrats here in the state to get their input on how we might start thinking about messaging. First, Will Casey is communications director for the Washington State Democratic Party. Hello, Will. Hello, Stefan. Thanks for having me on. Of course, man. And also our friend Shasti Conrad joins us again. She is chair of the King County Democrats. Hi, Shasti. Hi, Stefan. It's great to be back with you. Absolutely. So let's just start with a very basic question. So we know that the Democrats in the House have passed a ton of legislation on things like voter reform, climate, background checks, paycheck fairness, on and on and on. But of course, none of it's become law. And so there is this narrative that Democrats have gotten nothing accomplished since they took the House. And I'm wondering, how should we best counter that and take control of the narrative? Shasti, what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, I think what we've seen uh, so far in this year has actually been a good sign, which is that you see the Democrats really setting forth, um, you know, an incredible slate of candidates running um, at the federal level, but also here, um, you know, the state party and us here at the county party have been really big on um, saying that every election is important. There is no off year. And we've got incredible candidates that are running. And that is to make sure that we are dominating the news cycles. We're dominating these platforms. We're getting our ideas out into the ether. And I think that's how the Democrats really, we play. We have to play on the offense. We can't keep waiting for the other side to set the tones. We and wait for us to just be reactionary to it. And you know, I think that's one of the things that the Democratic Party has really learned since 2016 is that we can set the, we can set the pace and set the tones by putting out our ideas. Well, do you agree with that? How how do we set the narrative? Yeah, yeah. I think that uh, focusing on local elections, especially since we're just a few weeks out from local elections in almost every state, uh, is extremely important, especially here in Washington. Um, I think that as folks are having conversations with people who trust them, their friends, their family, uh, I think it's important to make sure that we are focusing the conversation at the right nexus of power, mostly or, or explicitly saying that it's McConnell and Trump who are keeping those policies that the Democrats are passing through the House uh, from becoming law, right? So I think that it's important to frame this discussion if we can't shift the conversation from federal policy to state and local policy uh, to make sure that as we're talking about federal policymaking, we're sort of naming the heroes and the villains here, right? The heroes and the Democrats who are taking these votes, who are passing these policies, and the villains are McConnell, who's leaning into this brand as being the grim reaper of the Senate and refusing to allow these things to even come forward for a vote because he knows that if his caucus votes these things down over and over and over again, uh, that Democratic candidates for Senate across the country will be able to use those votes to uh, prove that those incumbents are not serving their constituents. So I think it's our job to uh, over overcome that strategy from McConnell by making that point, even though they're not even taking those votes. Yeah. And I I 100 percent agree with that. But I wonder, just on a psychological level, if reminding people that Republicans have been so effective in stopping Democratic legislation somehow reinforces the idea that Democrats are ineffective. 
Uh, I don't think that's the case because I think it's important for us to realize that when we took power, we did something with it, right? We've built consensus among our party, which is a big tent, on these very specific issues. And we are the ones who are coming to the table with solutions. And all that the Republicans are coming to the table with is obstruction. And I think especially as in, impeachment carries on and the word obstruction becomes more and more common in our in our discourse, uh, I think that'll be effective. We will get to impeachment. Don't worry. Um, I want to talk about platforms um, and specifically how we convey to voters that uh, democratic policy actually benefits the average American far more than Republican policy. I mean, I've kind of rode this like a hobby horse on this show, and it's it's something that I think about a lot. We are better for people in healthcare, meaning that we, you know actually we want people to have it. Uh, we're better on jobs. We're better on education. We're better on the environment, and on and on and on. How do we get that through to voters, especially middle class and working class voters, that Democrats are actually on their side? Shasti? Yes. So I, whenever I talk about framing and messaging, I always reference a book that I read on um, the first presidential campaign I worked on back in 2008, um, which is it's called um, Don't Think of an Elephant uh, by George Lakoff. And in that, he talks about one of the biggest failings that the Democratic Democratic Party has often done is they've they've relied on facts. You know, they've 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 always gone like, well, you know, people should just you know understand that this is how things are and live it and like live objectively, and that will be we have the sort of upper hand in the fact that we we live by facts. And what we've seen, I think, and especially in the last, you know, several years, um, is that that facts don't always work and they don't always matter. And but what does is talking about values. And so I think talking about how, you know, um, this is like, as Will said, like, you know, this is a big tent party, but this is a big tent America. So this is a diverse country. This is a place where, you know, um, at every income level, but particularly with the working class and, you know, that, that people are just want to be, they want to be able to take care of their families. They want to make sure that their kids are going to school. They want to make sure that they have health care, that when they get sick, that it's not going to mean, um, you know, that it's going to be devastating to the family. Those are values that most people can find some congruency with. And that's what I always say that like the party has got to be talking to people from a heart centered level and really talking about values, not just, Quoting numbers. Now, the numbers are important to some people, but they have to come to back up the values-led platform and also moving ourselves away from identity politics, but to really, how, what do we have in common? How do we speak to, um, you know, issues that are most pr- uh, pressing for the working class, for the for middle-class America, which, honestly, more and more and more, as we've heard many of our progressive candidates talk about, it's the 99%. I mean, the majority of people are have facing this similar struggles. Um, and so that's what we really, we've got to keep pushing to that because that's how we get to the majority of Americans. Yeah. I, I love that you brought values into this. And I, I think that's a hundred percent right because, you know, politics is very tribal and people do tend to vote more with their emotions than their brains. That was uh, the subject of another book, What's Wrong with Kansas. Um, Will, what are your thoughts here? I mean, how do you feel we can best get people to vote, you know, in their own self-interest? So I think it's it's important to start that conversation with the recognition that people are currently voting in their self-interest, right? Like, how do you mean? So I think that uh, it's it's important to recognize that people have a lot of interests that they are and how they sort of measure their self-worth, right? And so part of the reason that people are making a rational decision, and I do believe that it was a rational decision to to vote for folks like Trump, um, is because they had a fundamental distrust that anything that we were saying uh, was accurate. Right. Like there's this effort to sort of discredit the media has been very effective to a large number of Americans. And I think it's because we have consistently over promised and under delivered, which doesn't mean we need to trim our sales, but we just need to make sure that we are identifying where those weaknesses are in the system. Right. And so I think that what we are trying, the, the argument we're making when we're putting forward those values that Shasti talked about is that we are the candidates we're putting forward are going to fight for people like you. Right. Like at the end of the day, that's what people want. It. That's what they care about. They don't necessarily care about getting into the weeds of a healthcare discussion or what specific targeted tax cut is going to do things for them. But if we're talking about Trump's tax cuts and the need to repeal them, 
yes, partially it's because of what we can do with that money and the, the good that we can accomplish in people's lives. But it's also because he did it because he was fighting for people not like us. He was fighting for his billionaire donors and his rich friends. And that's the people he represents every single day when he's doing this self-dealing in the White House. We are the ones who are actually fighting for everyday Americans who are going right. to work, who who are fighting for a living wage and who need, you know, the, the the peace of mind that good health insurance brings. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's kind of my point. And I, what I sense you're getting at is issues of trust. And so I'll just ask you to drill down on that. How do we regain the trust of the, the voter who, you know, uh, as you say, in good faith, turned to Trump? I think that's the uh, the billion dollar question, right? <laughs> um, I think that uh, I, at least the way that we sort of attack things um, on a race by race basis, um, you know, as we're you know trying to support Democrats all across the state, up and down the ballot, um, is to help them identify for their voters, if they're an incumbent, for their constituents, um, what they have done or what they are promising to do that feels deliverable. Right. Um, and so that's, I think, uh, from the very you know, most local election all the way up to the, to the federal level, pointing to specific things that we can get accomplished and outlining exactly how we're going to accomplish that helps people buy into the pre uh, premise, not because they're evaluating that policy against sort of a blank slate, but because they can follow the explanation and they can buy into the fact that each step along the way feels achievable. So that's pointed to things like infrastructure investments, democracy reform that we've done here in Washington State, uh, how we've made uh, community college and college uh, tuition um, affordable for you know low-income families, touting the things that when we, you know, sort of going back to your first question about uh, the House Democratic agenda, when we get power, we do things that, that matter in people's lives. I love that you brought up trust. And I think, you know, some of your listeners may know from my um, previous appearances that my background is that I actually sort of did things backwards, which was my career started by being on a presidential campaign and going to the White House. And I, a lot of my experience before I came back into um, Washington State was on a, on a national level. And what I have found as I've moved back into more local politics is that there's such a greater opportunity in really being able to build that type of trust that you're talking about um, and being able to really connect with people because you're, you're and have a larger impact because you're it's it's person to person. Um, so often, you know, I meet with all types of people who want to run for office in, in King County. And, you know, especially because, you know, King County has a lot of folks who, um, you know, come from tech backgrounds. They're always trying to optimize, like, how do I get to be able to reach the, you know, most number of voters in the least amount of time and all of that. And I always say you, the nothing beats getting in front of a person and letting them kick the tires and letting them first they have to like you then they have to trust you and then they have to believe that you can do the job and that's always that's key whether you're running for school board or whether you're running for president and you know being able to do that at the local level is i think where you can sometimes have the greatest impact and really make some big changes the other point i wanted to make on trust um and of all the things it was i've been flying a little bit more um it was an in an in-flight magazine on one of the airlines and there was an article um that was a woman who was a has a phd and was writing about actually trust and she made a point that i i wrote and wrote it down in my notes on my phone because I, I thought it was such an interesting point which was that she said trust used to flow upward to the elites the communication structures were about you know information and trust going up from sort of grassroots up to the top but as technology changes things she says that trust is starting to flow sideways and so that shifts the way that people build coalitions less of having to be in a hierarchical structure but more being able to bond be past racial lines and more it, it builds actually this larger coalition amongst the 99%, which is shaking the trees of those who have always been in power, because part of that trust was in, well, we have to trust the elites, they know what's best, they tell us what to do. But as technology makes it so that, you know, we can get on a Skype call, no matter where we are in this country, um, to have this type of conversation, that means that we're able to connect on, we don't have to wait for the hierarchy, right. we can build it amongst ourselves and build that trust in that way. And here we have Indivisible, which I think is actually such <laughs> yes. a great example of what you're talking about. Um, 
You know, another factor uh, that I, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't bring into this is the way that the GOP and, and Trump specifically have so effectively used fear and xenophobia to scare and anger people. Um, Will, any thoughts on how Democrats can counter that? I know that Obama used hope very successfully. Is that the answer? Uh, I think that there's, it's definitely part of the answer, obviously. Uh, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I have a better solution for bringing people together than uh, the greatest president I've ever uh, had the pleasure of of, um, being represented by. Um, But I think that in this modern media environment, it is something that we all have to take ownership over, right? Uh, I think that to build off of what Shasti was saying about the way that we establish uh, trust here is that that's sort of what, what Trump is doing is the inverse of that, right? He's trying to create this suspicion among people that there's just not um, a way for us to come together. And since we are, we especially younger voters, people who are more likely to have uh, a challenge voting, um, regardless of their age, because they move around a lot, are, are they have a hard time building these networks, right? I think that's, that's a large part of why his message has found such fertile ground in our culture right now. Um, and I think that it's something we all have to take ownership over in our own personal networks and say, no, that's not acceptable rhetoric, right? Like, regardless of how difficult that conversation can be, um, Policing our own communities uh, is an effective way for us to fight back against that, right? To say that, like, I'm not going to allow my friend or family member to, to say such a thing on social media. And instead of blocking them or instead of disengaging from them or hiding their posts, I'm going to get in the comment section and, and fight it out with them on that. And maybe you won't persuade that person, but you'll at least show everyone who's reading their content um, that their point of view is not unchallenged and it's not automatically valid. And if you want to know how to have those conversations more effectively, may I direct you back to the book that Shasti was talking about earlier, which is George Lakoff and Don't Think of, uh, Don't Think of an Elephant, because uh, he talks a lot about how to frame uh, our arguments in ways that actually are more receptive to people on the right and their you know, value system. Um, since we brought up Trump and we're going to talk about him a little bit more right now, um, I'm curious to know how much you guys think we should define ourselves in opposition to Trump? I mean, do we even bring him up at all? And we're going to talk about impeachment in a moment, but I know that a lot of Democratic leadership believes that we succeeded in 2018 because Democrats made it all about issues like health care and not about Trump. Shasti, how much do you believe that's true? I mean, I do think that's a large part of it. I mean, the, the data says that you know, when you talk about like low turnout or you talk about things in a negative way, that it actually tends to like depress the vote or it makes people feel like, what's the point? You know, it doesn't matter. The and and but when you talk about things in that like, you know, I'm taking pride in my community, I'm stepping up, I believe that we should have, you know, a, a Uh, we should have a Green New Deal, we should have a climate policy, we should have like, when you talk in the affirmative, and you talk positively and aspirationally, that that actually does have a larger impact um, for, for people wanting to be engaged and wanting to get involved and for them actually, then you have to provide the information for how to vote, how to do it. So I, I think that it's important that we are, like I said earlier, that we are on the offensive, not just on the defensive. Um, However, at the same time, it is impossible to ignore the fact that what the Trump, what Trump and the Republicans are doing is just, I mean, beyond the pale to say it lightly. Um, and so I think tying the Republican, continuing to tie the Republican Party to the mess and the disaster and the, you know, I think war, war crime level behavior of um, of the Trump administration is key, but we just can't get stuck there. Um, and it, I, I, but every time people, um, you know, in King County want to talk about Trump, I always say like, I hear you, we're going to get there, but there's these incredible candidates that need your support. And like, you know, there's Trump loving mayor in SeaTac, there's a, a Patriot player, you know, proud boy on the city council out in black diamond, you know, like there are ways to fight this right here um, at home, which makes it feel more doable and not so overwhelming. You are kind of hinting uh, around the edges of what a political scientist named Rachel Bittekofer 
uh, has been talking about recently. She was one of the only analysts to correctly call the blue wave in 2018. And just kind of boiling it down, so her data basically showed that because we're in a hyperpartisan environment, that anti-Trump sentiment and Democratic enthusiasm were way bigger factors in the Democrats winning than the so-called Obama-Trump voters changing their mind because of things like, say, health care. Uh, what do you make of that, Will? Do, do you believe that Democrats should embrace anti-Trump sentiment and big, bold ideas? Yeah, yeah. And I think it's a way sort of it's a layer on top of our messaging on our core issues. It's not a message in and of itself, right? Uh, just saying that we want to fire this guy because he's irrational, because his erratic behavior puts us all at risk uh, is certainly a starting point. But I think one of the lessons we learned from 2016 is if that's what you lead with, that's all that get, gets written about. And right. so the substance of what should motivate people doesn't ever make it into the conversation, right? Um, and so then folks who feel like there's sort of just no, no one fighting for them in Washington, D.C., uh, the cost of voting for someone whose erratic behavior puts them at risk every day uh, seems less, right? Because there's not the opportunity cost that if we elect this person, we're going to miss out on the chance to have more access to affordable health care. We're going to miss out on the chance to address the climate crisis in a way that is grounded in science. Um, we're going to miss out on the ability to have a, a, a tax policy that actually uh, addresses the historic levels of uh, income and wealth inequality we're experiencing in this country. And so I think that the way we talk about these things has to be sort of a both and approach, right? Yeah. I think we have to we have to lead with what we want to do differently and so that that's the first thing that people are hearing and then remind them as sort of the second statement that uh, the choice that you're facing is what I'm proposing or someone who's going to, you know, pilfer the government coffers for his own personal enrichment and the enrichment of his his billionaire donors. Yeah. So, you know, we hear this a billion times, but it's the, the walk and chew gum balance, right? It's mm -hmm. we can be anti-Trump and we also absolutely need to give people something to believe in. And we need to especially uh, get our are basic sided on the Democratic side. So, you know, I want to shift over and talk about impeachment, um, specifically about how the Democrats should deal with it as an election issue, uh, because it, it is looking like it's going to spill over into the 2020 election. Uh, Shasti, how do you think that Democrats should message around impeachment as we move into the election season? I mean, I, I think that it was it was time. And I'm glad that, you know, Speaker Pelosi moved forward. I'm glad that we have the numbers of, of um, you know, members that are supporting it. It was it was past due time in some ways. But, um, you know, I think I think we move forward. But like we were saying earlier, it can't be the entire platform. It can't be people. We can't just be responding to um, what this current administration is doing. We have to be setting forth a better vision um, for this country. And so, um, you know, I, th I think that the impeachment process will, will play play out the way that it is. I would remind people to think about how we felt, you know, six months ago, a year ago about the Mueller report and how so many people were like, oh, well, you know, when that Mueller, Mueller report comes out, then, you know, everything will change. And then it didn't, it didn't, it, it helped to lead us to the point that we're at, but it wasn't this groundbreaking, um, you know, thing that, that changed everything. The work that we continue to do by um, supporting strong candidates, by being at the table, that's the work that is that is changing. The other big thing that I would say is that when you look back at elections and you look back at campaigns that continue to win, the, it, the common theme is always change and, you know, and a positive vision for whatever your jurisdiction is. That is always the winning formula. So that, you know, that is why we have to push beyond just staying at impeachment. So be realistic about impeachment. Keep our heads down. Do the work. Will, do you agree with that? Yeah, yeah. And I think it's something that Democratic candidates at every level of government should be embracing right now. I think it's something that gives us an opportunity to talk about the kinds of issues that we've struggled to get on the forefront of voters' minds for the last two years, right? I mean, this current impeachment inquiry is, I think, rightly focused on the very clear and very obvious uh, message that the president withheld military aid to an, to an ally that was being attacked by Russia um, so that he could amplify his own personal political ambitions, right? Like he is yeah. 
he's he's taking over control of the government for his own uh, benefit instead of the benefit of the people he's supposed to represent, right? And I think that there's basically any attack that you want to land on Trump, whichever is more resonant in your particular jurisdiction that you're running in, I think there's a way to use impeachment as a lens to bring that issue to the forefront, right? Again, just saying Trump is bad, he doesn't deserve to be in office, period, end of sentence, is not an effective message. But saying that he's doesn't deserve to be in office because he's personally profiting instead of helping working families in your district. Uh, and you're going to do the opposite by, you know, putting forward this clean government agenda like the House Democrats did in H.R. 1, um, I think is is extremely important and effective. I'm actually I'll just follow up and ask, would you like to see the scope of the impeachment proceedings go beyond Ukraine? Uh, you know, he's committed so many impeachable offenses. And, and part of what an impeachment inquiry can do is build a case for the voting public, right? Yeah. And I think we there <laughs> we're lucky enough that the president continues to commit impeachable offenses every day <laughs> on TV, uh, on Twitter. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And so I think that uh, this can be a lens to focus the attention on those types of issues. Right. Like, I don't think we need to necessarily go back and try to link the, um, you know, the Trump Tower in Moscow deal when we have a situation here where there's already, you know, accusations of sort of corrupt influence being and, and, and influence trading and, and sort of pay for play access to the, our, our American foreign policy uh, is, is contained within this one issue, right? So I think it's it's a little bit of a false dichotomy. I don't think that there's, you know, I think you can limit things to uh, the Ukraine context while still encompassing the full scope of what makes Trump so unfit for office. I will just ask one last question about impeachment, and that is the concern that a lot of Democratic leadership had going into this is that, you know, Trump say, first of all, there are two concerns. One is that Trump will not be convicted by the Senate and he will treat it as a total exoneration. Uh, The other is that voters will sour on the process over time. Shasti, do you have any thoughts on either of those things? I think, I mean, yes. And that's, that's been my fear. And like, as I I spoke about the Mueller, Mueller report earlier that, you know, I think people put this faith in like, they want an answer. They want a solution. They want to get out of this mess. And when it takes a long time procedurally, to do it, people get frustrated by that and don't always understand how it's all gonna work, which I get. I have now learned, and I was very similar in that, like, you know, when there's a wrongdoing, you just need to fix it. But as I've gotten on this other side of now being, you know, a party chair, I recognize that, you know, having some degree of procedure and process that's followed, that's airtight, makes it so that the solution that you get to is sustainable. And so there is a reason why these things sometimes do take months and months and you have to get them right in order to make sure that they're not overturned or they're not used against other people um, in unfair and unjust ways. So that's where I, I just I keep going back to like. You, it's time to just like get your hands dirty, get focused on doing the work that you can locally and in your community of getting good people elected, because that is an actual action that, you know, when you're getting itchy about like what's happening with the impeachment, when are we getting rid of this guy? You feel like, I mean, that's why I got back involved locally was because I was like, I need to do something. I want to be a part of the movement. Indivisible has been the absolute kind of one of the best organizations that's been able to under like harness that energy in this era. So that's why I say like, let's let the impeachment process work itself through, but don't get stuck there. Keep it moving, get involved in your local communities and help support people who are going to do some good in their, in their communities, because that's the part that's meaningful. Well, I brought you both here today to talk about messaging for 2020, but uh, you just made a great closing argument about the importance of this year's election in 2019. So thank you for that. Will Casey is the communications director for the Washington State Democratic Party. Will, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me, Stefan. And Shasti Conrad is the chair of the King County Democrats. Thank you, Shasti. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And next, we welcome back our friend Jennifer Young. She is a counselor who specializes in treating trauma and PTSD. She is also a leader with Indivisible Action Tampa Bay, and she joins us again to discuss some of your thoughts and concerns about the many challenges that we face as citizens and activists. Hello, Jennifer. Welcome back. Hey, 
Hi, Stefan. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. No, it's great to talk with you again. And, um, you know, every day in Trump land seems like a year. So it seems like many, many years since we've spoken. It's only been just a couple of months. But in that time, of right. course, we uh, so much has happened and there's just so much to talk about. And I think that's a good place to start. Uh, and that is a feeling of overwhelm that I'm hearing from a lot of people. I got a number of comments about, you know, people who are overwhelmed, not just by the news, but also kind of by the complexity of everything that's happening. You know, it's it's hard to get your head around everything that's happening with Trump and Ukraine and the impeachment process. And then there's a tragedy, of course, of, of everything that's happening in Syria. And it's just hard to process and to know what to do. How do you advise people generally to deal with overwhelm? Yeah, you know, first of all, I think the overwhelm um, is really, really hard. It's a really hard um, emotion and experience to have. And I get it. Um, I honestly think the overwhelm is more connected to the fact that we are all having a traumatic response to these world events Um, in general, um, experiencing these things. um, We're trying to make sense of it. They don't make sense. And we are left feeling helpless and hopeless and terrified. And honestly, that's the bare bones definition of what it means to be traumatized. So I think that's partially why the overwhelm is so confusing and, and frustrating is because you're actually having a traumatic reaction. Um, I, I would say to folks and activists that having, um, dealing with the overwhelm is really about having good self-care as we go through this process, um, making sure that you're able to put yourself first um, so that you can stay in the game. There's that old saying about putting the oxygen mask on yourself first. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. a lot about that as a trauma therapist. Like if you don't take care of yourself, you won't be there to take care of other people. So it's really, really important that folks step up and put themselves first. I think I, ta- I think I talked about this last time, but I'm a big proponent of managing your exposure and using um, good discernment skills on healthy avoidance. We'll touch on that again, actually, since you've brought it up again. I mean, how do you titrate? What's the right dosage? So you really have to pay attention to your body and your emotions. And I I will just use the example of either listening to something on the radio or watching a television show. You have to be in tune with your body's reaction to it. And if you can start to feel the anxiety rise or start to feel discomfort Mm. in your stomach or start to have a headache, you have to turn it off and or walk away from it. It's really dangerous from a trauma perspective to move through something that's traumatizing um, and not stop when you sense and feel the danger. Because what you're doing is just re-traumatizing yourself, causing more traumatic reactions neurologically. So it's really important to be in tune with your body and stop and walk away and move away from that thing that is traumatizing you in the moment. That's what it means to have kind of a healthy avoidance. A lot of people tell me like, I can't watch the news anymore. I don't watch the news anymore. And I get that and I think that's important. Now do we have to balance that a little bit because you still need to stay informed. But I think really paying attention to how your body is feeling and choosing not to move towards something that doesn't make you feel good. I, and you, you've heard me say this before. This also includes people, <laughs> um, pe- yeah. people in your life that are causing you to have anxiety around even these political issues. I talk a lot with other activists about family members who are Trump supporters or family members who are apathetic Um, It is not okay for you as a concerned activist to stand around and try and convince or even be exposed to uh, that. It's dangerous for you psychologically. Um, So I'm a big proponent of, you know, being avoidant of those folks. It's just not good for us. Yeah. So limit your exposure to the sorts of things that trigger you. And, you know, I'm just I'm I'm nodding as you're saying all these things and I'm hearing my uh, audience in my head agreeing with everything that you're saying. And yet it's so hard. I mean, you know, and I I am so guilty of it because the first thing that I do when I log on the morning is I, you know, I go on Twitter and I immediately (laughs) feel my blood pressure rise, you know, because there's there's so much there that's triggering. And, you know, This brings up something else that I got a lot of emails about, and that was outrage overload. Um, Because, Mm. of course, you know, you log onto Twitter 
Every single day, there's a new outrage from Trump and the GOP. All you have to do is read his Twitter feed. Um, And, you know, I will just say, and I don't like saying this, but there is something almost affirming about outrage, right? That you're you're like validated by it, but not in a healthy way. Can people (laughs) become addicted to outrage? What's at work there? Well, in general, you can be addicted to anything that feels good. So outrage for us does feel good. Um, So yes, in a sense, um, you can be quote unquote addicted to it. I agree with you. I'm not quite comfortable with that phraseology, but in a sense that really is what's happening. I do believe without any evidence, but neurologically that reward pathway is stimulated. and, And when we connect with the anger that we see about something and we see, you know, a thousand other people on Twitter also outraged and we feel comforted by that. So yes, there is an element there of, of needing to be outraged with other people. Um, and, and, and again, you know, that old saying about if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. Like as activists, we have to have some outrage. Um, I think again, where we have to um, pay attention is to make sure we're doing that in a balanced way that our outrage is also in line with our level of activism, meaning don't just sit around and be outraged. I think about keyboard activists, right. um, you know, who are sitting around, rah, 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 I'm so mad about this. And they're just typing about it on, on some Facebook group or whatever, instead of also taking action and doing something about their anger or their outrage and or also managing their self-care and doing other things to comfort themselves in the face of this outrageous behavior. So I think, yes, you can be addicted to outrage, um, but I don't think we should pretend or that we should not be outraged uh, as activists. We must be. But I think it's important to go do something and stay active so that that's not all you feel or that's not the only way you receive comfort during times like this. Um, I, I really believe that being active and getting out and being around other like-minded people and getting out and canvassing or making phone calls or you know doing the things that we do as part of Indivisible, that is the thing that can help us prevent being using outrage as a negative coping skill or as our only coping skill. Absolutely agreed. And, you know, it. I guess if there's something to get addicted to, it would be taking action in that way. Yeah, and, exactly. Right. And, you know, and I've said before that I think that there's something really affirming about a group like Indivisible in that you are able to come together with like-minded people. You are able to take action. Uh, it, it feels therapeutic to be together yeah. in that way. Absolutely. We touched on this a little bit last time, too. But I think even when it when it comes to dealing with our sense of overwhelm and managing our outrage, one of the most important things you can do for yourself is to stay true to who you are through all of this. And the way to do that is to stay around like minded people, be around people that can help you strengthen your values be true to your values and move and choose behaviors that are in line with your values. Ultimately, when you lose who you are, you've lost everything. And that's what we risk in these dark times is that we, you know, there is pressure all around us and confusion all around us that is challenging who we are individually, who we are as a community and who we are as a country. It's there. That's what happens. We turn on the news. We're being challenged who are we? And so staying around like-minded people is so comforting and so good for us, for our soul and for who we are. It's really, really important. So I think, again, it's one of the top coping skills that I would say to people. And, you know, not live in a vacuum. You know, you know it's not okay to just only take in information from other like-minded people. That's not necessarily what I mean. I do mean being around like-minded people who will challenge you and, you know, good depth of information and range of information. But ultimately, ensuring that you are around people who are lifting up your values um, and that you can lift up theirs. And and again, as from a soul level. Yeah. And I I know as a therapist that uh, you believe very strongly in the power of making, you know, good relationships and having those be sort of a, a bedrock place in your life. And this is something that is kind of related to everything that we're we're talking about here. But I've been reading and hearing about something called compassion fatigue. And mm. this is usually something you hear about with people who are, you know, caretakers for loved ones who are sick. But I'm hearing about it in reference to activists, too. Sure, sure. Can you talk about what compassion fatigue is and, and, sure. and how it's different from standard burnout? 
Yeah. So I think, again, like you said, it's really common in our field and helping professions to have to manage our compassion fatigue. In general, it's exhaustion from caring too much. Um, Burnout is just burning, you know, burning your flame all the way down. But compassion fatigue has a lot to do with expending your personal resources for the care of other people. And, um, And in general, it's not healthy. Once we've hit that point of, of caring too much, so much so that we start to have a negative impact to us, um, obviously that can be harmful to us. The other little reason you're hearing about this is because in general, progressive activists tend to be highly empathetic people. That's I, right. I have absolutely no scientific evidence to that fact, but I think you and I would agree. Anecdotally, that. yeah. I mean, we know that to be true. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, so again, from that perspective, um, you're, we are suffering emotionally because we are givers and giving and giving and giving. Um, in general, some signs just off the top of my head would, it looks a lot like general anxiety or depression. You might have emotions related to fearfulness and hopelessness, um, some generalized negative thoughts. Um, another thing that happens with compassion fatigue is the loss of feeling joy uh, when doing the things you used to enjoy doing. This uh, sounds a, a lot like depression. That. It does. It does. The other little piece of it is the physical fatigue, literal tiredness. Your body is tired. So if we, I, I sometimes think about it being the general um, depression symptoms along with a lot of the physical body symptoms. Mm. Um, there can be some irritability as well um, and a desire to isolate, which is a lot of that depression stuff. I would also say as I, as I speak about this, you know, I think on any given Thursday, I might be suffering from that, you know, but when you're trying to evaluate, is this an issue for me? We're looking for symptoms that are lasting two and three weeks at a time, okay. not just I'm having a really bad day and don't want to don't want to get out of bed or you know had a really uh, hard time yesterday. But but if these symptoms are sticking around for a long time, it's probably a good idea to get some help either by seeing a therapist or just taking some time off for yourself. I I tend to tell my clients, can you double down on your coping skills for a week or two Mm. and see if you don't improve, you know, spend a little extra time on self-care, a little extra time doing mindfulness and breathing and grounding skills, a little extra time, you know, with people who will uplift your values, those kinds of things and see if you don't can't get a lift from, um, from some of the symptoms for a while. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean it's 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 really important for us to monitor ourselves right now because there's just so much that is new I think for a lot of people. A lot of people are new to activism generally, right? And so a yeah. lot of the things that are coming up right now might be kind of unfamiliar and maybe frightening. Absolutely. Again, I think that has a lot to do with that overwhelm too. So you you combine um, people that are new to activism or new to these issues or, ha- or having new awarenesses to these issues, completely overwhelmed, confused by the, f- the fact that these terrible things are happening to us, to our neighbors, to our communities. We're completely racked with fear and a sense of helplessness over this stuff, right? And then we have this heightened, I need to help I care about other people. Yeah, it's it's uh, definitely a, an issue for us. Well, kind of shifting gears in a big way, I want to get into some listener questions. Um, and the first one is about anger. Um, uh, Tan Lee has a question about anger, and it's actually a pretty funny question in its in, in its entirety. So I'm just going to read it verbatim. He says, I okay. think I am becoming a Sith Lord. I am comfortably <laughs> relishing my hatred and anger and letting it empower me and focus my resolve rather than weaken me. I will use it to amp up my involvement and volunteerism to get out the vote. I will cut out anyone in my life who is too stupid to see what is at stake now. So here's my question. Can justified hate actually be beneficial? Is it okay to say hell yes? <laughs> sure. You just <laughs> I did. Hope so. yeah. I just did. Okay. So yes, as a trauma therapist, I'm a big fan of, of the power of healthy anger. And that listener described it almost perfectly. So a lot of people are afraid of negative emotions and there's some value in that negative emotions to the extreme, to the point they're harming our, us or other people. Yes, that's a problem. But as a as a trauma therapist, I really believe that survivors need to experience trauma. I mean, they don't need to experience trauma. They need to experience anger um, as a way to uh, understand that they've been hurt and harmed and betrayed. Sometimes coming through a trauma, you tend to numb out. 
um, or are manipulated into kind of staying in that trauma state. Mm. So anger is really beneficial. It's a sign that you've moved through it psychologically. And, and the way that listener described is exactly what I ask people to do is use that anger to motivate you to act. Oftentimes, um, survivors will use this anger to, uh, to be, get, do something for their own best interest. Um, and so, yeah, I, I absolutely am a huge fan of it. And I think that's what's motivating quite a few of us. And yeah. I'm a fan. Well, the, I'm, the flip side of that, and I certainly feel that, is that there's this helpless component to anger. Yeah. You know, sure. seeing, seeing every day you see Trump and the GOP just get away with atrocities that just make you furious and you sit with that anger and it feels terrible. It, re- it reminds me of, you know, the Buddhist saying anger is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. So, yeah. you know, what's the healthy way to process anger? I mean, is, is it simply taking action? Are there other things we should be doing? I think that's the one of the best ways you can uh, process anger is to do something. If you sit in your anger, it's going to build. And so by using that anger to take action, I think you're going to get a lot of relief and you're going to gain some new insights. Um, most people who have empathy are going to th- then land in behaviors that either um, are better for themselves or other people as a result of that. We don't want to experience bad things in general. We want things to be good. So when we take our anger and move it into action, it typically, if we're, if we're moving in the right direction to have empathy, it will land us uh, someplace good. And so, yeah, I think it's kind of important to use that to take action. I will also add, I, I think this is kind of related to your question, um, is we can sit around and watch what happens with this administration and feel helpless um, and become angry but I think a big part of shifting that anger is to uh, is being a part of a larger uh, group of people or organization like Indivisible, because when we pay attention to what we have done um, as a group, um, we can decrease our sense of helplessness yeah. um, and decrease that anger. I personally may not have created change, but me and my group of fellow activists, um, including the nation of Indivisible, we have created change. And, and so I think that's something to, re, to be able to focus on um, when we get stuck in that helplessness that creates that anger is staying focused on that bigger picture. I love that. And I, I want to actually take that and see if we can move it into another area where people feel helplessness. Um, and this comes from a question by Mark Hertz. He said, I'd like to get your perspective on the idea of, quote unquote, pre-traumatic stress disorder as it relates to things like climate change and the possibility of an autocracy. Do you see trauma in people about things that haven't happened yet, but very possibly will? So when you say pre-traumatic stress, I think hypervigilance. Mm. Um, So hypervigilance being the fear that something will happen based on the fact that something bad has happened in the past. And um, that pre-traumatic stress, even that phrase going along with hypervigilance means that we are living in a state of fear that that bad thing is coming. So that's bad for us, like living in a state of fear um, neurologically and psychologically is not healthy for us. Um, It hurts the body. What I want people to focus on, and I think healthy activism is more vigilance. Vigilance is knowing that something bad could happen and living a life being prepared for that something bad, but not living in the fear of it, just being prepared for it. That is such a, a it's, it's an important distinction, but I think it's also a very difficult balance to strike, isn't it? Yeah, oh yeah. Uh, and again, especially if we think about climate change, because frankly, we're living that right now. Like there are things that are happening on this planet that are causing harm to us. Um, and so sometimes when I teach this to trauma survivors, they are not actively in danger, right? Cause that's one of the first things we work on is getting safe. But for, if we, if we were to parlay this to climate change, there are things that are happening that are absolutely harmful to this planet right now. So it is kind of a fine line. Um, but we, what I for sure know is that we can't stay in the fear of the future. We have to live right now. And and again, oh gosh, I hate to repeat this theme, but what are we going to do about right. it? 
Right. You know, so I also use the metaphor with my clients of living a life, walking through a forest. You are walking through a forest. You know you're in a forest. And what that means is there are beautiful plants and cute little bunnies, but there are also dangerous wolves and possibly bears out there. Right. So we're not going to be afraid of the bears and the wolves if we don't see them. But we certainly have everything in our tool belt we need to protect ourselves from the bears and the wolves. So as activists, if we were kind of using that metaphor, it's okay. You know, the ice is melting and the core is heating. Um, What are we going to do now? living in this moment and enjoy what we have around us, but also being mindful of how we're going to be prepared um, to either prevent and or live in a world that is different uh, from a climate perspective. Uh, again, it's about staying present, being here right now, making choices that are keep, keeping us safe on a day-to-day basis and focused on keeping ourselves safe in the future. You know, what can I do? It's really, it's managing that fear state um, and keeping that in check by staying present and grounded that I think is the solution to uh, the the pre-traumatic stress thought or, or feelings. Does that yeah, make sense? It, it absolutely does make sense. And, and then just one last question, uh, and this actually also has to do with the issue of fear, but it's coming from the perspective of somebody else. Uh, Susan Vossler would like to know how our feelings of angst and despair impact our kids who look to us for assurance. And I think what she's asking is, how can we reassure our children when we ourselves are feeling scared and uncertain? Well, I'm a big fan of honesty. And I think it's important to be honest with our children age appropriately. And what that means to me is to validate um, our uncertainty and our fear. Um, If our children, if we're having that discussion with our children, I think if we act fearful and then our kids ask us about that and then we say, oh, well, oh, no, I'm not afraid. Everything is fine. Kids know. Kids know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and kids know because we all have a limbic system and all that stuff, like they know. And so what we're teaching them by not being honest about how we're feeling, including our uncertainty and fear is we're teaching them to invalidate feelings and that, um, you know, to pretend everything is okay when it's not. So I, I first and foremost think it's important for adults to validate our emotions and kids emotions, um, when we're going through this. And, and I think what we can do then is to demonstrate and talk with kids about how you can cope with fear and cope with the unknown. What are we going to do about it? And then you know what just came to my mind. Isn't that a great way to teach activism? Oh. So you're so you're afraid about you know uh, climate change. Well, what are you going to do about it? Right. Mm. So you're afraid for your neighbors in your community. What are you going to do about it? How many young activists have we seen? Um, lead movements the as Parkland a result. The Parkland kids, Greta Thunberg, and, and, and many, many others. Yeah, Absolutely. And to me, that's a great example of embracing their own sense of uncertainty and fear in a very powerful way, in a way that is honest and validating and, and, and moving. So I think the honesty and gosh, back to that activism again, what are you going to do about it? Right. And how are you going to cope in a healthy way? Well, I'm going to go gather up a million of my closest friends and march in the streets. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so I think validating and, and kind of, um, you know, being honest about our emotions is a way to help the kids. Completely agreed. Jennifer, thank you as always. Absolutely. I'm happy to do it. Jennifer Young is a therapist and leader with Indivisible Action Tampa Bay. So before we go, I want to acknowledge the death this morning of Representative Elijah Cummings. There are very few people I think of as living embodiments of history, but he was very much one of them. I also often find it very hard to believe in our elected officials, but I I never had a hard time believing in him. I very much want to acknowledge his leadership during this difficult time. I, for one, felt palpable relief when he retook the gavel of the Oversight Committee. And I also learned today that he actually signed two subpoenas related to the impeachment inquiry from his deathbed. He devoted his whole life to justice, and I'm so grateful. And I know I'm not the only one to be inspired to carry on that legacy. So thank you, Elijah Cummings. 
And that'll do it for this week's show. If you missed anything, if you would like to catch up on past shows, if you would like links to the things that we talked about, you can find all of that and more at indivisiblepodcast.org. You can also subscribe to the show there too. If you would like to get in touch, and I would love it if you did, the email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com and the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Our Associate producer is Charlotte Gittleman. Thank you again to my guests, Will Casey, Shasti Conrad, and Jennifer Young. Special thanks to Lori Cowell. And as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.